Nehemiah was, um, he was an exceptional leader. He was, he was a God-fearing man. He was a man of character. He had a very high uh, place of responsibility in the nation of Persia. He was, um, he was a man who had a heart for God, and he was a man who put his life on the line for the Lord. He was a man that God used at a critical time to bring hope to a nation that was uh, extremely discouraged and, and disheartened. So we're going to work through uh, Nehemiah here over the next weeks. I read a book, a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, a business book. Um, when did this come out? 2001. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not a business guy, but I read business books, and this is one of the best ones I've ever read. It, uh, <clears throat> Collins is a researcher, and the book Good to Great was that he has a research team, and what, what they did... In fact, I'll read this. The study that they did from the book flap. For years, the question preyed on the mind, P-R-E-Y-E-D, preyed on the mind of Jim Collins. Are there companies that defy gravity and convert long-term mediocrity, or worse, into long-term superiority? And if so, what are the universal distinguishing characteristics that cause a company to go from good to great? So in other words, maybe some companies, these, the, and he lists companies in here, and they've done these studies, and they had this, this rigid criteria, and the companies that came out, and then he talks about in the book, were companies that were once golden and great and uh, superior, but with the passing of time, they were still functioning, but they had gotten down to the level, perhaps, of mediocrity, but remarkably, they had transformed from that medium area or even the good area, and they had become great again. And so he, uh, it, it's a fascinating book. Now, and you say, so why are you bringing this up? Because the first time I read it, it reminded me of Nehemiah. That's why. Is there a structure that helps a company go from good to great? Um, he said this process was repeated over and over until everything hung together because they had all this data, an amazing amount of data, until everything hung together in a coherent framework of concepts. We all have a strength or two in life, and I suppose mine is the ability to take a lump of unorganized information and see patterns and extract order from the mess to go from chaos to concept. However, I wish to underscore again that the concepts in this final framework are not my opinions. It's what the data showed. This is based on facts. So, he's got three things he starts off with. When he looked at these companies that had been mediocre and went from good to great, he's got three things right off the bat that he hits. The first one is what he calls level five leadership. And later in the book, he'll talk about different companies and he'll talk about their CEOs. And their CEOs you've never heard of. Uh, they're CEOs that just were, um, well, to be honest with you, as I read the traits of these guys, 
They were God-fearing men. If they didn't, if they weren't believers, I will tell you this about them, because they had the traits of God-fearing men. They were humble. They didn't seek the spotlight. They weren't looking to get on the cover of Forbes or Fortune. They were just hardworking men. They were devoted to their families. They were devoted to working hard. They were devoted to um, serving people in their work. I'm sure some of them were believers. I'm sure others were not believers. But here's the thing. Have you ever come across somebody, come across maybe a family, and they're not Christians, they don't follow the Lord, but they seem to have a family structure that just works. And the husband and wife love each other, and the kids are disciplined, and they're not Christians, they don't go to church, but you look at them and say, that's a Christian family. I remember Ray Stedman talking about this when I was in college. And Stedman said, here's the answer to that. How can they live like that and not know the Lord? He said, you got to go back a generation or two or three. They come from Christian stock. They got, they've got a Christian grandpa. They got a Christian grandma. They came from soil of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have, may have not followed Christ themselves. You know the difference between a Puritan and a Yankee? This isn't a joke. So the Puritans, people make fun of the Puritans, but the Puritans were that group of pastors in England that wanted to keep the church pure. They wanted to follow Scripture. And they were mocked and harassed and persecuted. But they were men who knew God. It was those of the Puritan persuasion the first document ever done in this country was the Mayflower Compact. I'm sure it's been canceled by now. But the Mayflower Compact, the Mayflower Compact, they're calling out to the living God, and it quotes scripture. These were God-fearing people um, who were the first settlers. And they always paint them as quirky and weird, and I'm sure some of them were, but most of them were just God-fearing people. And they live lives according to Scripture. So what's the difference between a Puritan and a Yankee? Why is the baseball team in New York that's won more World Series than any other team, why are they called the New York Yankees and not the New York Puritans? Well, the Yankees were the descendants of the Puritans, who walked away from the gospel, but continued to live according to biblical principles. And as a result, they became very wealthy and they became very successful. They did not want to submit to the Lordship of Christ, but they lived their lives according to the patterns of scripture. That's the difference. So in good to great, he has what he calls a level five leadership CEO. Um, he says, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy, 
Uh, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. Self-effacing. So these companies didn't go from good to great just because someone suddenly got a plan. All right, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to implement. No. They got the right leadership on top, a level five leader. Then the second thing that level five leader did was not implement a plan, but he did what they called get the right people on the bus and get the wrong people off the bus and get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Then what they're going to do is they're going to figure out what needs to be done and then they're going to do it. So the right people on the bus is really important. The third principle that he has is that these companies that went from good to great, they all did the same thing. They confronted the brutal facts. What's going on here? What are we up against? They didn't live in la-la land. Uh, they didn't require uh, masks and vaccinations and these requirements in this city and then let people swarm through the southern border. That's nonsensical. They, uh, you got to confront the brutal facts. I, I've actually heard it said by certain politicians, and you know I'm completely neutral on this stuff, <laughs> but that there is no crisis. Actually, there is. See, that's a failure to confront the brutal facts. But the further away you get from the fear of God, the more insane you become. In Romans 1, the further you deny God, the further you get away from God, the more you're given over to a reprobate, illogical, unthinking mind. That's where we are. You've got to confront the brutal facts. So that brings us to Nehemiah. Because in Nehemiah chapter 2, here's a man who loves the Lord, and he wants to honor the Lord, and he wants to make a difference. And I've got an outline for you, and it kind of follows the pattern of the first three principles in good to great. So I'll give you the outline, then we'll go back and work our way through it tonight. So number one, Nehemiah, a level five leader. Second point, Artaxerxes hyphen the right king on the bus. The right king on the bus. Number three, Jerusalem hyphen confronting the brutal facts. We're going to be in Nehemiah 2 tonight. It's been 90 years since Cyrus enabled the Jews to go back and for 90 years, they faced opposition, and they have not been able to rebuild the gates or the walls. It, it was getting to the point where it looked like it was an impossible task. But God was at work. Sometimes we look around, and what's surrounding us looks absolutely overwhelming, and to the degree that we start losing hope. That's kind of what Nehemiah was facing here. So he calls out to the Lord in prayer, and 
And there is something fomenting in his heart. And what's fomenting in his heart is, is a plan that God might use him in the position that God has providentially placed him in, that the Lord might give him favor and enable him to go to Jerusalem and actually rebuild those walls. This was his heart's desire. Um, that's the background of the story. You know, it's a tragedy, and we're seeing this in our country. When, when walls are destroyed, walls of morality, walls of truth, walls of uh, wisdom, it is a tragedy to see those walls be broken down and to see the chaos that is the result of that. And we're seeing it on every front. I was reading uh, an article by Carl Truman, a very insightful theologian, and he was talking about having a conversation with a pastor friend, and the pastor friend was telling him that he's having to deal with something just in the last week or two he hasn't dealt with ever before. He's being asked by moms and dads, how do we handle a situation? Our daughters will not drink any liquid before they go to school. And the, and the answer, and the first response was they won't drink before they go to school. No, they won't drink because they do not want to have to go into the ladies' room because at any time, any male can say he identifies as a girl and come in and there's absolutely no safety. I, I have to tell you, this has happened to me more than once, even in the last week. I was reading something. There's a satire site called the Babylon Bee. And they're funny. They, they, those guys are very creative. But I was reading an article, and as I was reading it, I had to, I stopped and I just had to say, to, I said to myself, I said, is this true or is, am I reading the Babylon Bee? And I couldn't see the heading. And I didn't know. And it turned out what I was reading was true. But it's so insane, it should be satire. But when the walls are broken down, you can't tell the difference between truth and insanity because the walls are broken down. And we could talk for three hours about every area of life where the walls are being broken down and the ramifications of that. It's not a good thing. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You just keep your eyes on the Lord and you keep moving and you keep doing what's right. This is where we are right now. I had someone ask me uh, recently, I've been working on this point man revision. They were asking when it was going to come out. I said it wasn't sure. I wasn't sure because of the backup of COVID and I'd find out before long. And I'm dealing with some issues in this revision and they knew what they were and they said, do you think it's going to come out? 
And I said, I don't know. We shall see. It's with a Christian publisher, but a number of years ago, that Christian publisher that still publishes Christian books was bought out by a New York secular house. So the way things are going, I'm not even sure, but my job was to write it. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But the walls are broken down. Nehemiah, the desire of his life was to rebuild the walls of that city. Nehemiah was a leader. If you're a male, God's called you to be a leader. You may not view yourself as a leader, you may not think of yourself as a leader, but you're a leader. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you are a Christian man, you are a leader. Uh, you have a family, you have a wife, you have kids, you have grandkids. If you're a single guy, it should be your desire one day to be married and to have a family. That's a godly thing. That's what you want to do with your life. Uh, that doesn't happen for everyone. Some are called to singleness, but the majority of guys are called to be married and have families. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He was in a high government position. That was his sphere of influence. That's not my sphere of influence. It's not your sphere of influence. We all have a sphere that God has placed us in, and that sphere, uh, it, it, you have a zip code, you have a home. Um, are you married? You have kids? You have grandkids? You're in a church? You have a job? You have a sphere of influence. There are people in your lives that you... Um, the way you live your life, they watch it. What you say, they listen to. That's your sphere of influence. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10. Paul talked about the fact that God had given him a particular sphere. You know, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. But in 2 Corinthians 10, he's having to kind of defend himself. He says, but we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast, watch this, beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere, which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. So Paul had a sphere of influence, but it was different than the sphere of influence of some of the other apostles. So you've got a different sphere of influence. You work in a different industry or in a different area than the guy behind you or the guy next to you. But everyone's got a sphere. Adam had a sphere. It was called the Garden of Eden. He was to work it. He was to till it. It was perfect. And then sin got into it, and they were cast out. Now, here's the deal. As Christian men, as God-fearing men, within our sphere, we are to be Nehemiahs. Because within our sphere, there are some broken walls. It begins in our own lives. We all are sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So what we need is a savior, we need a Lord, we need a redeemer, we need to be forgiven. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. We need to be born again. And when that happens, when that happens, and often it happens through some kind of crisis in our life, we might, we might hit a brick wall going 150 miles an hour, and we suddenly realize we need the Lord. And he gets our attention. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So a lot of times we are brought to the Lord through some kind of major league crisis because the walls in our own lives are broken down and there's no way to repair them and the only way to repair your life is to call out to the one who made you. So it begins with repairing the walls of our life and even as we walk with Christ and grow in Christ, we are to guard our hearts because your heart is a wall. Guard your hearts for from it flows the wellsprings of life. You're to guard your thoughts. You're, you're to guard your eyes. You're to guard your hands. You're to guard your lips, your speech. We are to uh, guard the walls. Sometimes the walls get broken down. We have got to ask the Lord to help us to repair the walls in our life that get broken down so that we can then help others. There are all kinds of broken walls. It can be a broken marriage. It can be uh, a child that has wandered away that is uh, just absolutely will not be dealt with, will not respond. It's heartbreaking. But there are situations within my sphere of influence where there are walls that are broken, and in your life, in your sphere, there are walls that are broken. God uses God-fearing men to rebuild the walls. That's what God does. Richard Day wrote this many years ago. He said, it would be no surprise if a study of secret causes were undertaken to find that every golden era in human history proceeds from the devotion and righteous passion of some single individual. This does not set aside the sovereignty of God It simply indicates the instrument through which he uniformly works. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column, there is always one man who knows his God and knows where he is going. That's Nehemiah. And that's what every family needs. And you say, man, that's too much for me. I'm just, you know, I'm, man, Steve, I've screwed up so much in life. Well, join the club. How many guys have I talked to over the years who have told me, man, I wish, man, I really screwed up, and the greatest desire of my life is to be used by God. Well, you don't believe in forgiveness? Oh, well, you know, know, I, I do, sure. But you don't think that God can use you? No, if you knew my history. Well, and tell me why you don't, well, I've just failed. I'm just such a failure. I mean, I've had this conversation with many guys. I'm an absolute failure. God can't use me. All right, let me follow this. So you think, because you failed so many times, God can't use you. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Who else does God have to choose from? Because everybody you know is a failure. We just fail in different ways. All of us. So what God does, God takes men who have failed, but men who 
repent, and they turn to him. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. When God sees a broken and contrite spirit, he's there, man. He's there for you. And what he does is he picks us up, he loves us, brushes us off, puts us back in the race. You see? And then the comfort we've received from the Lord, that comfort, that strength, we pass on to other guys who think they failed and they'll never be used. It's just how it works. It's an amazing process. So our job is to be looking for, and let me say this to you. When I say our job is to rebuild the walls in our sphere of influence, you can't rebuild every wall. But what happens is that God will put a burden on your heart. He'll put a burden on your heart for someone or for a particular situation. And this is what he's calling you to do. You can't do it all. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because that's what happened with Nehemiah. Back in Nehemiah chapter 1, he finds out about what's happened in Jerusalem, and it breaks his heart, and what happens is he's grieved, and he's fasting, and he's praying, and he can't get it off his mind, he can't get it off his heart. And as he is praying in Nehemiah 1, he says this in verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what happened when they were taken into captivity. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell, which is Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. Now watch this prayer. Watch this. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He's talking about himself. And the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. What is he talking about? God is putting this idea in his heart about the walls They've been busted down for 90 years and they need to be rebuilt. And he's thinking, I'm not in this position of power by accident. God has put me here for a reason. I'm not just here to have all these perks and drive a Lexus chariot. I am here by the hand of God and he's got something to do in my life. And it was, it was something he couldn't get off his chest. So he's praying about it. So then he goes on and says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. By the way, if you're wondering where I am, I'm under number one in the outline. Nehemiah, the level five leader. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king, and it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, I've got to point something out to you. Um, this is the second time we've heard a reference to a specific month. In chapter 1, verse 2, he said, no, it happened in the month of Kislev. And then, in chapter 2, now it came in, about of, in the month of Nisan. 
in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So I haven't memorized all the Hebrew months. I don't know if you have. But I had to look it up. But what he's saying is that four months after he got the bad report about the walls of Jerusalem, um, God moved. But God didn't move immediately. He had to wait. Oftentimes, when God gives us a task, or you're thinking about making a change, or you're thinking about, I was talking to a, a guy recently, and he told me in his job situation, he, he was actually praying and wondering if, if he shouldn't be looking around because of just what was going on. He just felt like it wasn't a fit. Um, and he was frustrated. What's interesting is the next 10 days after we had that conversation, and I didn't know any of this was going on, but I talked with him probably on the 11th or 12th day. He said, man, has, have things ever changed? He said, I'm supposed to be here. I mean, I, it's as clear as clear can be. And it all started with a very disappointing um, assignment. And I thought, this pretty much verifies that I'm not supposed to be here. And I showed up and I reported, and God broke through. And he said, it would take me an hour to tell you the story. I said, I've got an hour. And he told me the story. And it was, uh, it was absolutely remarkable how God used him and his gifts, and he showed up where he didn't want to show up, and suddenly God began to break through and, um, and verify the gifts that were being ignored, and now they're being acknowledged, and there was a great crisis, in fact, three crises, and because of the wisdom and before the, the giftedness that he had and because he was able to, he was in a place he normally wouldn't be geographically, he got some information and one of the persons at the top asked his opinion and he was able to say this and this and this and this. And it completely turned around the outcome. And he was, uh, he was astonished. That's sort of what happened to Nehemiah here. Uh, and you see, this can happen to you. I've seen it happen in my life. There are times when you hit absolute bottom and you think there's absolutely no way out. And God breaks through. I, I remember uh, in 2012, I... Uh, I was flat worn out. I mean, I was exhausted, and I couldn't keep traveling the way I was traveling, and I'd had, all this, I'd had all this input. You need to put your stuff online. You need to put your stuff online. You don't have anything online. Yeah, that's right, I, I didn't. And I had had guys say, listen, you just need to it would take this much money and all that, and it just never happened. And I actually, uh, I didn't pray about it, my wife was praying about it, but I didn't pray about it. Uh, I just didn't think it was going to happen. 
And one day, I kind of reached a crisis in May of 2012. And uh, I, I prayed with Mary, and I said, I don't know if I can keep going at this pace. And I just talked to my brother-in-law half hour before, and he said, Steve, you got to get this stuff online. And I, I, I wanted to punch him. And, I mean, he was right, but I was just so sick and tired of hearing it. And so Mary took off. I went into the bedroom, and I stopped as I got it right up against that high boy dresser, and I put my head down on that dresser, and I said, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. I can't keep this up. And I, I, uh, here's what I said to the Lord. I said, I, I, am, uh, I don't even know if you want me to put my stuff online, but here's what I know. I don't have the money to put it online. I'm going to ask you to stop guys from asking me why my stuff isn't online. That's literally what I prayed. And uh, I, so the next day, I'm, which was a Wednesday, it was the last study of the spring semester, I was doing the noon study. And I was just glad it was the last one because I was shot. And as I'm Walking out of that restaurant we were meeting in, and I'm headed to my car, two guys on the sidewalk, they'd been coming to the study a long time. I couldn't remember their names. One of the guys, he had a T-shirt, cutoffs, flip-flops. Looked like he ran the surfboard concession at uh, Destin. He said, uh, he said, hey, Steve, is this the last study? I said, yeah. He said, so how am I going to survive over the summer? And I said, well, I don't know. It doesn't look good or something. I don't know. Just horsing around. And, he, and then he said, no, I'm serious. I travel back and forth to Europe all the time. How come I can't get your stuff online? And I thought. <laughs> and then he started walking towards me with his buddy. And he said, no, seriously. I would think that your stuff, it ought to be online. I said, yeah, it's kind of a long story. Uh, he said, well, he said, I, I mean, he said, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to access it. I'm sure some other guys would. And he said, why don't you have it on? And then he stopped. Instead of following through and saying, why don't you have it on? He said, well, he said, why don't, and he goes, well, and then he started thinking. He said, well, that you'd need to raise funds to put it online. You need to hire some people. Um, you have any idea how much that would be? I said, well, my brother-in-law just told me yesterday morning, he's done that for a couple churches, it'd be about $50,000. He said, really? And I said, that's what he told me. I said, I, I, mean, I don't know anything about it. He said, okay. I said, okay, what? And his buddy started laughing. And uh, he said, he's, and he said, he's gonna write you a check. And I looked at the guy, and I thought, you've got surfboard wax on your knees. I mean, he, he, and, and three days later, he handed us the check. And that's how this thing, that's how it got going. And then we needed to find a guy that knew how to put it together. And I was speaking the next weekend in Houston, and just by chance, Providence, 
Afterwards, met a guy, and da, 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 do you know such and such? Yeah, I used to work for him. Yeah, I just moved to Dallas. And what are you doing there? Well, I'm starting a new ministry. I said, what'd you do for the guy in Alabama? Oh, I ran his online ministry. I said, really? So he became our first online guy. And then it just built from there. When it looked impossible, God came through, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and when things look impossible, what happens is you start losing hope. And this is exactly what was going on in Nehemiah. Now, the longer you have to wait, the harder it is to keep hope alive. Does this make sense? Okay. So he had to wait from the time he had this on his heart that those walls needed to be rebuilt. He had to wait for four months. One of the hardest things in the Christian life is to wait. A number of years ago, I took a couple of weeks to read through the Psalms, and every time I saw the word wait, I circled it. The word wait is everywhere in Psalms. God often tells us to wait. Now, when, God, when we're to wait on God, it doesn't mean we're passive, because we have other responsibilities, and we have other work, and we're to get on that, and we're to do that. You just don't sit on your tail and just veg out. But sometimes God hymns us in, and we really can't do anything until he comes through, until he gives us a breakthrough, and it has to come from him. It's, um, it's a hard thing to wait. From the time Nehemiah was praying and had a burden, it was four months until he got the green light to talk to this king. So let's go to Nehemiah 2 here. He, he's given us the date. It came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that the wine was before him. I took up the wine and gave it to the king, and I had been sad in his presence. The king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. The reason he was afraid, you were not supposed to be sad in the king's presence. You didn't want to be a downer. You did not want to do anything to depress him. You had to keep an even keel. And this is why he was afraid, because for four months he was sick at heart. He'd managed to cover it, and the king picked up on it, and now he was afraid, because if he caught the king at the wrong time, it could literally cost him his head. So this is a pretty critical moment, four months later. And here's the thing. A lot of times where we're waiting, we're wondering why we have to wait. We don't understand why we have to wait. Because what we want to do is we want to, we want to move on. We want to make progress. We don't feel like we're achieving anything. We feel like we're stuck. Some great saint one time said, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. If God delays, oftentimes he's delaying for a reason. Let me give you a great verse. If you find yourself in a holding pattern and it seems like God's not responding, Isaiah 64, 4 says, No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Once again, No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. In other words, if God has you in a holding pattern, if, you, if you're out of work and you've applied to every possible job, every website in the world, I mean, you, you've, I mean you've done it all and you're sitting there, what do I do next? It's very frustrating because you haven't heard from anybody. 
You're hemmed in. No, I have seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. In other words, while you're waiting, while you're delayed, he's working and he's putting things in place. He's providing an answer. He's just setting things up. You know, in Israel, in the Old Testament, when they walked through the, the, for 40 years in the wilderness, they had a cloud, a fire by night, and a cloud by day to protect them from the sun. And when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. That's not a bad principle in the Christian life. And so while he was waiting, but here's the thing. He was waiting on God for four months. While he's waiting, he's thinking. While he's waiting, this is, this is being chewed over in his mind. He is praying. He is seeking the Lord. He is uh, asking the Lord for guidance. Psalm, uh, is it 94? When my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. God knows your next chapter. That's important to know. He knows your next chapter. You know the chapters in the past, but he's got chapters in the future that he's written that you can't see and that you know nothing about. And here I am overwhelmed because I'm waiting and I don't see any activity and I think God's put me on the shelf. He's just setting me up. And what's happening here is that as, as the king, he suddenly has this conversation with the king, this is what he's been waiting for. The king's not going to take his head. What's happening is God is about to put the king on his bus. And because the king is on the bus, he's going to slide right on into Jerusalem. And uh, it's, it, it was a God thing. God is manufacturing this meeting. So he says, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Because the king had asked him, what's going on? Uh, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Now, by the way, I said this a couple weeks ago. This king... Esther was his stepmother. This king knew about the Jews. He knew that they had been brought from, Babel, from uh, Judah, Jerusalem, into Babylon for 70 years. He knew that Cyrus had returned them. He knew the history. He knew about the Jews. His father was the one who protected the Jews from Haman and from extermination that Haman was going to do to all the Jews, that's in the book of Esther. So he knew about the Jews, he knew about Jerusalem. Why should I not, my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, its gates have been consumed by fire? The king said to me, what would you request? See, that's what you want to hear from a king. What would you request? And Nehemiah said, gosh, you know, I'm not sure. Let me think about it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> That's not what he said because he'd been thinking about it for four months. He'd been stewing on it, and God had been putting it in his heart. So watch what he does. He starts laying out a plan. So he breathes up a prayer to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. That's no small ask. King said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? 
So he told him. He had thought it out. So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Now, I don't want any customs issues. So if you'd give me a letter in advance, they'll let me right through. He'd thought about it. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he gave me, give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I shall go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. That's worth waiting for. I'll tell you what, when the timing is right, God moves. When the timing is right, no one, no power on earth can thwart God's plan. But sometimes we've got to wait for the right time. And while you're waiting, you're preparing, and you're thinking, and you're seeking the Lord, and you're putting things together. That, that's not wasted time. And by the way, it's, it's tough to find good people. It's tough to get the right people on the bus. But it's not a problem to God. It's not a problem to God. In the late 90s, when the men's ministry, Promise Keepers, was going crazy, I, I, I look back on that, and I still can't believe I traveled like I did and spoke as much as I did. But, you know, that was 30 years ago. Um, but it was, it was great. It was exciting. Had these stadiums full of men. And then our ministry was growing. And when I wasn't doing Promise Keepers, we were invited to churches and, you know, a bunch of churches in the same town to get together, and we'd have 1,500, 1,800, 2,500 guys. Well, I had a staff of about three, and administration is not my strong suit. And, I mean, we're booking stuff constantly, and it had to be organized, and that's not me. And one night I said to Mary... It was just another time of discouragement. I'm not always discouraged, but sometimes I get discouraged. Because all this stuff is rolling in, and I didn't have the people. I had some young guys helping me, and they were hard workers, but I need someone that knew what they were doing. And I said, I, I can't, I, I don't know what to do. I can't, I, I need the Lord to help me. I need, I need I need him to send me somebody that can get this thing together and organize it. She said, you ought to talk to Dean Gage. I said, Dean Gage? Dean Gage was the former president of Texas A&M University. Uh, he'd retired. The way I met Dean was that he was as excited about men's ministry as I was Sent me in the book. Uh, sent me a book one time in the mail with a nice letter, and said, "Hey, you're next time in town." And so anyway, we, we got together, and then he had me down for a conference, and we spent a lot, a lot of time together over the next six months. And I mean, this guy had a heart for men's ministry. He was doing it. And uh, she said, "You ought to talk to Dean." I said, "I'm not talking to Dean Gage." I said, "Mary, he had twenty thousand people working for him." Women and say, hey, Dean, why don't you come up here and help our three guys out? <laughs> guys like that don't do this. She said, well, you don't know that. I said, I think I, I, think I kind of do know it. I, I said, I'm not going to humiliate myself by asking a guy like that to take some kind of little league job. 
She said, oh, okay. Good, I don't, it can't hurt to ask him. And I said, by the way, he's going to be in town next week wanting to have lunch with us. She said, oh, okay, great, Thursday or whatever. I said, okay. So we go to have lunch with Dean. And I, we're talking, we're just, you know, and finally at a certain point I thought, you know what, I'll just kind of float it out there. And we were talking about different things. And I said, well, you know, Dean, wouldn't it be something if at some point down the road God might open a door and you could come on board and help us out? And he immediately dropped his head. And I thought, well, I really screwed up now. And he was quiet for about 30 seconds. And he looked up at me and he said, I've been praying for six months that you'd ask me. I said, why didn't you just tell me, Dean? He said, because I felt that if it was of the Lord, he'd make it clear to you. Well, he made it clear. But I had to wait. God can put the right people on the bus. He can just make them show up. So don't lose heart. The third thing and I'm going to get the third thing on the outline here. Jerusalem confronting the brutal facts, and we're about done. This won't take long. Um, what he does, he winds up going to Jerusalem. If you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, So I came to Jerusalem. I was there three days. I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. There was so much rubble, he couldn't even get by. Uh, so I went up at night by the ravine, inspected the wall, I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So what was this guy doing? He was looking at the brutal facts. All right, what's going on here? What are we up against? Because it, it's, this should have been done 90 years ago. And now it's time to talk to the people. So what does he do? He pulls the people together, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a, pro be a reproach. Watch this. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. And um, he confronted the brutal facts. Then he told the people the story of what God had been doing over the last four months. And 52 days later, they completed that wall. And it hadn't been done in 90 years. So God takes average men, and what does he do? He does a work in our heart. He rebuilds the walls in our lives so that we can rebuild the walls 
in others. You can't do everything. But when God makes something clear, it might be someone in your family, it might be somebody at work who's in need, it, might, it could be a hundred things, a thousand things. But when God makes it clear and you can't get it off your mind, what's your task? It's to rebuild the walls. And if it's of God, it'll get done. He's just looking for a willing heart. So in a time when the walls are coming down, let's just keep following the Lord and doing the work he calls us to do. Because his kingdom will not be denied. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. Let's be those men to the glory of God. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you. Use us, Lord. Use us to pass on what we have received from you and from other godly men. Use us to make a difference. Use us, Lord, to not just love you, but to love our neighbor and to minister the grace that we've received and to be used as your instruments in the lives of other people or in a particular task, whatever it might be. Our desire is to be used. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.